Let me invite you to have your Bible open before you. We're going to be looking at the 20th chapter of Matthew, Matthew chapter 20, and we'll begin reading with the 20th verse. And before I read it, let me just again remind you that in order to understand this text, you really must understand the context of what has preceded all that Jesus proceeds to teach in this particular passage of Scripture, going back even into verse eight, uh, chapter 18, verse 1, where he talks about answering the question, who's the greatest in the kingdom? He sort of already has touched on this theme. He's now reiterating a theme that he's already been developing, and especially uh, le- looking at the comments uh, beginning in verse 20. He is preceded uh, immediately by Jesus reminding them he's going to die again and be crucified. So we begin in verse 20. Our main focus today is going to be the the last verse of this section, verse 28. And the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right, one on your left. But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And they said to him, We're able. And he said to them, My cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, And their great men exercise authority over them. It is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall become your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you this morning in need of your Holy Spirit's help for in order for us to discern your word, in order for us to gain insight into the wisdom of your word. Father, we desperately need your Holy Spirit to apply it, to make it clear to us, and to help us see your values in your kingdom. Because, Lord, we naturally think and we naturally have values that come from the world system around us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would teach us with great insight into the greatest act of service that's ever been done in all of human history. The act of liberating sinners from their trespasses and sins that they might live in newness of life and belong to you forever. Help us, Father, we pray, to understand this portion of your word in Christ's name. Amen. Jesus' public ministry was coming to a conclusion, and he had called 12 men to be his disciples. He had been teaching them. He had been trying to equip them to be individuals who would provide effective kingdom leadership for the church that he was to build. And as he made his final approach to Jerusalem, Jesus knew that he was coming face to face with those people who wanted to destroy him. And so Jesus takes this moment and he says, it's important that I instill the values of the kingdom 
into my followers while I still can. And despite now the third prediction that was found in verses 17 to 19 of chapter 20, despite his third prediction about his imminent death at the hands of the Jewish religious leaders and the Gentiles, Jesus' followers were doing what? They were still fantasizing about having and gaining positions of power and keeping up with their pursuit of greatness by having all the positions of of power and prestige over those around them. And so James and John had schemed and they had come up with this this idea of using their mother and eventually they were going to try to gain favors for themselves from Jesus, assuming that they would gain those favors because they were relatives of his. Their mothers were sisters. Mothers of James and John and the mother of Jesus were sisters. And when their request that they be given these special seats of honor in the kingdom someday, when that became known to the rest of the disciples, here come the sparks, here came the big uh, conflagration, here comes their indignance toward each other. And Jesus now is choosing this moment in which he wants to impress upon his followers that the importance of not pursuing greatness according to the patterns that they had seen modeled by the important and great people of their civilization and society. Notice that he does not rebuke them in this text. He's not rebuking them for the ambition of becoming great. He is urging them to pursue greatness, a greatness that is measured according to the standards of God, not the standards of the world. And rather than striving to gain advantage over other people, with positions of honor and privilege, Jesus urged his students to learn from his example. Jesus lived the values of the kingdom. And he's saying, look at me. Look at my life. Look at my death coming up here. And so Jesus was himself in pursuit of greatness. Greatness according to the values of the kingdom of heaven. And he pursued that greatness assuming the role of, of a servant. And if you weren't here last week, you need to sort of, again, hear the message that sort of laid out what it meant to be a servant, what it meant to be a slave. Very important understanding in what he has said previous to the verse we're looking at this morning, verse 28. Jesus rejected the standards of this world system. And so notice verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. True greatness in the kingdom of heaven is best illustrated by the greatest servant who performed the greatest act of service the world has ever seen. Let's consider this amazing illustration that Jesus provides and look at two insights into Jesus' pursuit of greatness. First of all, he pursued greatness through selfless service. As we pointed out last week, most of those that were considered great in the time of which Jesus spoke and taught in the first century, they were people who exerted, uh, rulers who exerted this uh, uh, ruthless authority. They had control over their subjects and they forced them to do whatever they thought right. And any act of defiance against these rulers in the time of Jesus and his disciples, it would be met with swift vengeance. And these kings lived the life of luxury. They would live in these palaces 
where they were waited on by servants who would cater to their every desire and their every need. And those in power would hold on to their power by maintaining an army of brave and brutal soldiers who would exert their influence over anybody who would dare oppose them. And these kings would celebrate their quote-unquote greatness by enriching themselves, by taking money and extracting it from their, uh, those under their rule through the tax treasury. And so they were never, uh, ever perceived to be as people who lived in a frugal way. They were people who just lived self-indulgent lives, tremendous wealth all around them. Contrast that with Jesus. Jesus, on the other hand, the ruler of the kingdom of heaven, was born into poverty and lived a life of poverty. He never owned a house, much less a palace. He resided in the obscure regions of Galilee, far away from all the political seats of power. He led, never led an army. He never imposed taxes. He never enriched himself by taking away from those around him. He did not ever have an impressive title of authority like Caesar or potentate or emperor. But Jesus referred to himself over 80 times with the title found right here in verse 28, the Son of Man. The Son of Man first appears in Daniel chapter 7. A messianic title does indicate that there is clearly messianic Uh, associations and overtones with this title, if you understood Daniel 7. But for many people, they'd missed that kind of connection, and so Son of Man was sending another signal to them, and that is it alludes to the idea of his frail mortality. That here is one who would be suffer. Here is one who would be rejected. Here is one who would uh, indeed be living a lowly life. Other people ascribe to Jesus the title King of the Jews. And when Pontius Pilate, only a few days away, interviewed Jesus and could see no outward evidence in Jesus that there was any kind of royalty or any kind of reason to give him such a title as being king of the Jews, he questioned him and said, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus' response in John 18 was this, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, Jesus said, my servants would fight. But my kingdom is not from here. Here is Jesus as the king about to be falsely accused, maligned, mistreated, abused. And yet he did not retaliate. He did not defend himself. What kind of king is this? What kind of greatness was this? Jesus did not need to pursue greatness as if he lacked it. He always possessed greatness because of who he was. Although he created the world and all that the world contains, and he deserved to be served by every person who has ever lived, Jesus did not demand to be waited on by all of his creatures. He chose to serve those that he made. He devoted vast amounts of time to ministering among the poor, the common people. He was healing the sick and liberating the demonized. He was showing concern for those who were the powerless members of society, including children and women and lepers and prostitutes. Instead of keeping a tight grip 
on a scepter, Jesus picked up a wash basin and knelt down and washed the dirty feet of his disciples. Instead of wearing a golden crown that was so impressive to people in the sunlight, standing out among huge crowds, Jesus permitted his enemies to pierce his scalp with a crown of thorns. And when he left behind the glories of heaven where Jesus had been served throughout so many uh, days on end by a myriad of angels, he humbled himself, he took on human flesh in the incarnation, and the Son of Man did not demand to be served. Even though he deserved to have the complete obedience of every single person who walked on the face of the earth. And so as his disciples, whenever we have these thoughts in our minds that we struggle also with similarly like the Jesus' disciples did in his day, and we want to be regarded as impressive to people around us, and we have envisions of being pursuing greatness and winning the respect and accolades of other people, my friend, may it be wise for us to review in our minds again and again, replaying the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples in Luke 22. Luke 22, verses 26 and 27. Jesus says, Let him who is the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the servant. And then notice the statement. I am among you as the one who what serves i am the one the one who is the king of kings and lord of lords and i am among you as one who serves you want to look what greatness looks like it is selfless service on behalf of the king of kings and jesus modeled that in ways that we can't fully ever fathom or comprehend because of his greatness. He was one who was great. And his, his greatness was lived out as he served those around him. Now, a second insight I'd like us to think about this morning is not only was there selfless service on his part, but Jesus pursued greatness by his sacrificial substitutionary payment. A sacrificial substitutionary payment. Although Jesus' selfless service is mentioned twice in Scripture as being exemplary for his followers. In other words, he's saying, I've given you an example, and this is the example you should follow. That is true. Two times in Scripture, John 13, 1 Peter 2. Nonetheless, Jesus' pursuit of greatness involved a unique, one-of-a-kind giving of himself. He gave his life as a once-for-all payment called a ransom. Instead of being served, Jesus instructed his disciples on what he did to accomplish the agenda of his Father rather than his own self-centered agenda. He had no self-centered agenda. His agenda was to do the will of the Father. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many or on behalf of many. Now let's first of all consider the word ransom here. It appears only twice in the New Testament, in this text, in Matthew 20, and also in Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 45. 
And the Greek word here for ransom comes from the root word, which literally means to loose, to set free, to unbind. And so Jesus' pursuit of greatness included this act of ultimate service, whereby he gave his life as a ransom, a ransom meaning the price paid to secure the setting free of those who had been held in captivity or bondage. This should not have been too surprising for his disciples to grasp. When he talks about ransom, he talks about, which is closely, uh, closely alluded to, alluding to the concept of redemption or redeeming. Ransom is the price you pay in the process of redeeming someone. And so it shouldn't have been too surprising because the Hebrew Scriptures contain a number of references regarding redemption. And I want to just review a couple of these for you. I know I'm going to quickly touch on these. There's much more we could say about this. But when the idea of redemption is set free somebody who's enslaved by the payment of a price, consider this, Exodus 6. In that passage in Exodus 6, God reminded the children of Israel that he was their redeemer who delivered them from bondage in Egypt. He says in Exodus 6, verse 6, Say to the children of Israel, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. So God's redemption of Israel was foreshadowing the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, who was the greatest act of service by redeeming his own people from captivity and setting them free by offering himself as a ransom. Another reference to a redemption in the Old Testament was Exodus chapter 21. Here it was recorded that an owner of an ox, if you were the owner of an ox, and that particular ox was known to be dangerous, and you, for whatever reason, had failed to take steps to secure your ox within a fence or with having an appropriate rope around his neck or something to keep him from getting loose, and that ox in his time of, of breaking away and getting loose, actually gored someone and killed another person then the, in the community, then you as the owner of that ox, you would be put to death yourself or you would not be put to death if someone were to redeem your life by the payment of an adequate fine. And so again, the idea of here's a person facing death or disaster And there's a price paid to spare them of that. Another example of Old Testament redemption had to do with economic distress. If you you have a family member and you're facing a financial disaster due to the death of your spouse, who was the landowner, he actually owned a piece of land and you as the the widow, uh, you're left with, an impossibility of trying to maintain this piece of property and there's no way you're going to be able to hold on to it, a close relative of the man who died could serve as a kinsman redeemer, a person related to you who will now help serve the function of redeeming this land, buying back the property that become alienated in order to keep it in the family. And that's the story of Ruth and Boaz who fulfilled that function for her, again, showing this wonderful image of a kinsman redeemer pointing forward to Christ. One more I'd like to show you is a picture of redeeming in the Old Testament was found in Leviticus 25. Impoverished Israelites, that is, you don't have much money, 
you could sell yourself into slavery with the understanding that you would redeem yourself after earning sufficient amounts of money, and therefore you could either do it that way or someone, a relative of yours, could redeem you and set you free. In all these examples, that's Leviticus 25, all these examples, people found themselves in a bad plight. They're in a bad place. They owe money or they're in a, facing a severe consequence of something that's happened, and they could be redeemed by the payment of a price. Now, the difference in the New Testament is that when we think of Jesus and his redemptive role, we're thinking about paying a ransom that is due to the plight is moral, the plight is not necessarily monetary or financial. As lawbreakers, all of us need have been placed under the curse of the law. We face divine judgment. We are facing condemnation. And Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 explains the benefit of Jesus laying down his life as our ransom. Ephesians 1, 7 says this, In Christ we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So everyone who trusts Jesus' payment and repents of his or her former way of life is fully forgiven and reconciled to God. And one day, the full benefit of Jesus' redemption is going to be fully manifested by those who believe in him because even though we are are now reconciled to God through Christ and he's paid that debt we owe to God, the fact is we're still going to die. We're still living under a fallen world. And so the scripture goes on to remind us in Romans chapter 8 that someday, even the ravages of our bodies that are still under the decay due to sin in our world, even that will be thrown over and uh, changed. And through Christ's redemption, our bodies will be redeemed and will finally be spared of all the pain and sadness and death will finally be over. So the redemption is quite extensive in its effect. Now I want to think about this idea of Jesus' ransom paid for just a moment because easily there's misunderstanding here. The price paid to have us redeemed was Jesus' atoning death on the cross. And some people, when they hear this concept of the ransom paid, they assume that when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the ransom to Satan. Satan, who they think and who he would would, uh, suggest, was one who had kidnapped us. He had snatched us away from our father's house, if you will. But this is an erroneous view. It's a view that has come up in church history over a number of times and has always been uh, denied and always taught as being Uh, incorrect because in Colossians chapter 2 verse 15 Jesus's death is portrayed as a victory over Satan and so if Jesus is to someday I'll be thought of as paying a ransom to Satan then the evil one he would have been the one who had been considered the victor he was the one who would have accomplished his goal he would have been laughing all the way to the bank so that's not a correct view here instead we should think of Jesus as giving his life as a payment made to God, made to the Father. God was the one who was owed the price of redemption. It was God who was the offended party due to the abundance of trespasses and sins that we've committed, and that therefore he's the rightful ruler of the universe, and any offenses that have been occurred on this earth, they are done against him. And so our sinful choices resulted in us owing to God a payment that we could never pay. 
So Jesus does what? Not to serve his own interest. He comes to serve helpless sinners like you and me. He sheds his own blood. He gives his own life as a ransom on our behalf. Not because he needed a ransom paid. He's doing it to help us, we who were in desperate need and had nothing to offer to pay to God. And Jesus offered his life to liberate us from our moral enslavement and from the impossible plight that we faced. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul expands on this concept of Jesus as our ransom payer. It is God, he is the one who saves enslaved sinners. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. There is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. I came across a helpful summary of what it means, this idea of paying ransom and the concepts of redemption. I was reading a book called The Truth of the Cross by R.C. Sproul, and here's what he said, summarizing the benefits of Christ paying our ransom on the cross. He said, in the ransom that Christ pays, he works as a kinsman redeemer for his own people. In other words, as our oldest brother, he pays the indebtedness that we've incurred before God. He buys us out of indentured servitude by paying the price for our freedom, thereby restoring to us our inheritance in the Father's kingdom. You see how those pictures of all the Old Testament themes come together in the portrayal of Christ and what he did and paying a ransom? Well, I want us to conclude here this morning on sort of where do we go with this? What's the big deal? So what's the significance of this? How does Jesus' payment of our ransom and his act of redemption help us to counteract the tendency to advance our own agenda? The tendency we have to to push ourselves into positions of prominence before other people and to pursue those instead of pursuing true greatness in the kingdom. First answer I'd like to suggest is that we need to reflect upon the redeeming love that was the motivation behind Christ offering himself as our ransom. Amazing love, redeeming love, is the kind of thought that we need to fill our hearts and souls with and that we become more um, aware of it and reviewing it again and again and again. You say, what are you talking about? Look at Galatians chapter 4, just for a second, to show you what this love did for us in taking us from a terrible situation to an incredibly blessed situation through Christ. Galatians 4, verse 4. Paul, who's already spoken of Christ, who loved me and gave himself for me in Galatians 2.20, Now he says, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might what? That we might receive the full rights of sons. That's an incredible statement. Full rights of sons. Now, again, you have to understand, what was our situation before Christ came and paid this ransom and redeemed us? Well, we were sitting in a cell, as it were, in death row. And we were assigned to death row, having been brought there because we had rebelled against the king of the universe. 
and there we've been convicted of heinous crimes against the Almighty God who created all things. And there we were left in solitary confinement. If you were, think about some man who spends 23 hours of his day locked in solitary confinement. And all legal appeals have been exhausted. Uh, There's no possibility of sparing us from what we rightfully have coming to us. And impending execution lurks any day coming at us closer and closer. But suddenly the cell door is flung open. And the judge who sentenced him stands there. And the judge who sentenced him has in his hands a full pardon. And he carries far more than a full pardon in his understanding and dealing with us. He also carries in one hand the pardon, in the other hand the same judge who sentenced us says, I'm also having this hand, papers of adoption. I'm adopting you into my own family. So the judge who sentenced this person to die now has adopted him, and this death row inmate is not just now put on the street and given a brand new cheap set of clothes and a hundred dollars. No, he's taken into the home of the judge himself and is provided with all the love and the care that a judge would supply to those who were his own children. That is the concept of what it means when Jesus paid the ransom and when he redeemed us. We were enslaved. We were facing a plight that we couldn't resolve. And not only did he resolve the plight, but he did what? He just showered us with his love upon us and adopts us as his own children. What redeeming love. What amazing, amazing compassion Christ has had on us to serve us in that way that he would die, that we might live as his children. Too often times we think we've lost sight of that and the gospel does not resonate within our hearts with the wonder, the love, the amazement of that truth of what this transaction has occurred because of Christ. I would commend you again that illustration was from taken from uh, Jerry Bridges' book, Gospel for Real Life, in which he talks about all those great concepts, including ransom. So we have to fill our minds, first of all, with the love and the amazing grace and mercy shown to us in Christ and the amazing privileges that we now enjoy, which we don't deserve. And that should lead us then to do the second thing I think would might help us in our tendency to be caught up in advancing our own agenda. And that is to remember that what the Redeemer, the one who redeemed us, that he has proprietary rights over his purchase. The proprietary rights over that which he has purchased. And again, in the words of John Stott, the idea is that since Jesus paid our ransom and he bought us with his own blood, we don't belong to ourselves anymore. I am not my own person. I have been bought with a price, Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And therefore, if I am not my own and I've been bought with a price, Paul then says, therefore, in light of that, you're to honor God with your life. You honor God with your body. You honor God with your mind. You honor God with your thoughts. You honor God with your words. You honor God with your hands. And therefore, the way to honor God is to say, it's not all about serving me because everything is about me and my life is all about me. My life is about Christ. So therefore, when I speak, I'm speaking on behalf of Christ. 
Are my words edifying? Are my words encouraging? Are my words truthful? Or am I lying in order to what? Make myself look better to somebody else. To advance my sense of greatness to other people. To accomplish my agenda. To somehow avoid difficulties in my life. It's fascinating when you begin to ponder the reality of that we don't belong to ourselves anymore. We've been redeemed. It leads us to then become convinced that there are a lot of things in our lives we need to let go of because the proprietary rights somebody owns me, I'm not my own. I belong to Christ. Real quickly, let me just touch on a couple of these things, how this plays out in the New Testament. We are no longer just free to do whatever we want. We're now slaves of Christ. He bought us. He has absolute ownership of us. Titus chapter 3 gives us a further insight into what this means. Titus lived among a people in Crete in which they were known to be just living loose. Anything goes, whatever you feel like doing, just do it. They were known as lazy people. They just gave in to whatever their fleshly desires were. And Paul writes to Titus trying to help him not be caught up in that kind of mindset. Chapter 3, verse 3. He says, listen, don't you know, Titus, that you have been redeemed from being enslaved to various desires and pleasures, spending your life in malice and envy and hateful and hating one another, disobedient all the time, deceived all the time. You're, you're not meant to live like that anymore. That's part of your old way of living. You don't just give in to all of what you want to do. Now you're serving Christ. He owns you. Peter summarized this major change in way of thinking and the way of understanding your life. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, he says, We have been redeemed from our old, empty way of life. Vain, vanity, empty, worth nothing. We, so much of our time and effort is invested in us and advancing ourselves. He says, that's no longer what you should be advancing your, investing your life in. Titus chapter 2, verse 14, the purpose of redemption was this. Jesus Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all wickedness and purify for himself a people for his own possession. Did you catch that? People that he owns. He possesses them. They are his. Zealous for good deeds. There's a zeal. There's a desire. There's a want to now say, Lord, I've been freed from myself. I'm freed from trying to impress other people. Now I belong to you. You've taken me from this awful situation and you've given me such blessings. Now, Lord, make me a blessing to other people. Help me not to be wrapped up in myself. Help me to have zeal to do good to other people and good for the kingdom because I belong to you. And my life as a slave is meant to serve you. And in so doing, I serve other people. What a radical, radical way to live. To pursue greatness in the kingdom. It turns everything upside down than what our world wants to do. The more you think about the generosity of God's grace, the more you think about the compassion that Jesus has shown us with His mercy, the more you think about His sacrificial love that redeemed you and me by paying that ransom, you say to yourself, the one who, didn't, who did deserve to be served, here He is serving me, laying down His life. Is it calling me to do too much to say I should lay down my life to serve Christ? To lay down my rights, to lay down my insistence on having things go my way and learning to say, it's all about Christ. I want Him to get the glory. I want other people to be helped. I want other people to be know that they are too 
able to know the joy of being loved by a Redeemer who is so great and so awesome and wonderful. Jesus redeemed His people from enslavement in sin in order that they might be free and liberated not to live for themselves, but to serve other people. Freed from shame, freed from condemnation, free from bondage and guilt, and free to serve with a heart overflowing with love and gratitude. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, how I pray that you would open our eyes to see the terrible plight that we are in, in our sin, that we would never forget the heinous things that we've done and the kind of arrogant attitudes we've had in our hearts where we've usurped your authority and your preeminence and your reign and control and high position over all. And we've put ourselves there a time and time again. Lord, we have defied you We've rebelled against you. We have broken your laws again and again. Help us, Father, to see how t- what an awful um, plight that we were in if we had received the full brunt and consequence of our sin. Thank you, Father, for sending Christ and that he was willing to not focus on being served by those he deserved to be served by, but thank you, Father, that he laid down his life. He surrendered on that cross. He allowed those nails to be pounded into his hands and his feet. He allowed them to put that crown of thorns upon his his, uh, scalp. And he allowed himself to be so mistreated in order to serve us and to pay that price. Father, we pray that as we meditate upon the payment of that price, that we might rejoice, we might be filled with great sense of awe and wonder, and that we might be called again to remind ourselves, what are we living for? Who are we living for? Who do we belong to? And what life is all about in terms of pursuing greatness. Help us, Lord, to pursue greatness in your eyes by learning to serve like Christ did. We pray in his name. Amen.